everybody. What do you want to talk about? Like the Bible? How do you say no? Of course. We'll talk about the Bible. I feel in the mood to uh, cover an entire book of the Bible today. Last week, we were in Philemon. This week, 3rd John. We can cover the entire book. You know why? In the original Greek, in which it was written, it contains 219 words. We could do it. 219 words. Who wrote 3rd John? Okay, the questions are going to get harder. <laughs> what else did John write? Fine. Speaking in tongues. You got it. He wrote a lot of stuff. He was in a place called Ephesus when he wrote this. How about this one? What modern-day country is Ephesus located in? Turkey. Turkey. He wrote it to a church in, we don't know exactly, somewhere in Asia Minor, which is also in what modern-day country? Turkey. He wrote this. Um, John, who wrote 2 John, is confronting an issue of the same kind in that letter and this letter, but from different sides. In 2 John, he was warning Christians about opening their hearts and homes to people who are undeserving of hospitality. In fact, he told them, watch it. Lots of deceivers are going out. False teachers. They may be attractive. They may speak well. They may wear cool shirts. (laughs) But don't open up your heart and home to them. They're deceivers. So John discouraged hospitality in an unbridled way in 2 John. Now the other approach in 3 John. Though he discouraged you, Christians, opening your home to some, he encouraged the same with reference to others. You should open up your hearts and homes to those who are deserving. So there's an issue in this chapter pertaining to hospitality. And that's the reason why John wrote 3 John. We'll see about it. Let's get into it. Verse 1. The elder. Do you have that in your Bible? Okay, good. You should keep your Bible. That's a good one. This, in this case, and in 2 John, the only two times when John refers to himself this way. He was an apostle. He does not say that. He says, John, the elder. Would you like to venture a guess as to why he invokes that particular label at this point? This is a bit of a hard one. Very good thought. Uh, He is the last living apostle. That is true. And the term elder literally means old man. That's what it means. It wasn't meant to be a derogatory term at all. It was a reference to age, but when the term elder was embraced by Christians, it took on a connotation other than just chronological age. If there was a man identified in a local congregation as having wisdom, being mature, having a godly character, that one was considered an elder to the extent this is the kind of man you want to learn from. Well, John was certainly that person. And I think he also uses this term because, frankly, he's pulling rank. There's an issue. There's a troublemaker in the church. John has to deal with him. And so he has to remind them, this is John, the one you're familiar with, John the Elder. I have a 
good credibility, good character. It's been recognized. I'm the one writing to you. Now, the word for elder in Greek is presbyteros. What does that sound like? Presbyterian. In fact, it's the same word. So every local church has what's called a church polity or a way of organizing. Every church is an organization and needs governance. Presbyterian churches have church polity based on leadership by elders, presbyters. Baptists have church generally. There are exceptions, but generally Baptists have embraced a congregational form of church polity, meaning ultimate decisions are made by the congregation, not by a group or a board of elders. Now, there's discussion, even argumentation over which is the right one. Uh, You're not going to win because the Bible does not clearly specify which church polity you ought to embrace. Why? Because it doesn't matter. You should embrace the church polity that fits your local situation. For us, congregational polity is our fashion, and we're not looking for a better deal. As far as I know, it works well for us. But the Presbyterian style is perfectly valid as well. So John is writing as an elder, and now we find out to whom he is writing, to the beloved Gaius. Who is he? Well, we don't know much. We do know this. There are three other men named by the same name in the New Testament. So this Gaius joins three others by the same name. But we know that this Gaius is not any one of the other three. We know he is a leader of some kind in the local church. And that's why John is sending third John to him. And we'll find out a little more of his character in just a second. Gaius was a very common name in Roman society at that time. John furthermore says about Gaius, whom I love in truth. Some take that to mean a statement of the sincerity of, God's, uh, of John's love for Gaius. And though his love was sincere, that's not what it means. He is not saying, Gaius, I truly love you. He's saying, I love you in the truth. What does that mean? These men had nothing in common, folks. They would not be in a love relationship. Their lives would not have intersected. They would not be friends. Why do I say this? Gaius was probably a Gentile. John is a Jew. They lived in different neighborhoods, folks. Gaius is a young guy. John is the last living apostle. He's old. They got ethnic differences, they got age differences, and probably other differences. What's the tie that binds? It's not their age, it's not their ethnicity, it's the truth. The truth is the tie that binds. Both men, though they be different, realize they have sin in common and need a savior in common, found Jesus in common. That's the tie that binds, the truth. You look around our room here, You see some measure of diversity. I pray it become greater in the days ahead, but we have a nice measure of diversity in here. Uh, None of our um, other differences are what bind us together. Where We have different skin color in here, as I noticed. There surely are different genders in here. Um, Ages, all the rest. A couple Yankees got in. There's a Jew in the house. 
I wouldn't be in your house. You wouldn't be in mine. What could I tell you? But now he is. <laughs> We're family. What's the tie that binds? It's none of those things. We're not even looking for that. We are bound together in the truth of the gospel. And what a testimony that is to the world and how pleasing that is to our Father. So that's kind of what's in view here. He goes on to say, beloved, verse 2. Look at this. We're already in verse 2. We are speeding. (laughs) Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So I'm going to camp out on this verse for a little bit because I'd like to tell you what it doesn't mean. Then I'd like to tell you what it means. Obviously, it's my opinion. So that means you don't have to accept it. You know what a cult leader does? Mandates you accept what he says. You know what a church leader does? Serves the sheep. You lead by service, not by lording it over. Therefore, please put your thinking cap on. If what I'm about to say doesn't sit right with you, leave it. No problem. You don't get penalized around here for not buying everything a guy like me or one of the rest of us say over here. This is my perspective on this verse, and I think I could support it. But if you think I haven't done it well, then good. Just leave it behind. This verse is used as a proof text. What's a proof text? It it means when you have a notion and you want to prove it, you will find a text that proves it. Now, that text may be out of context, may be mishandled. But as you look at it on the surface, it seems to prove what you have already Embraced is something you believe. So this is a proof text for something called prosperity theology. If you hold to prosperity theology, and I'll explain what it is in a second, I hope it doesn't divide us. I do not. But that doesn't mean we got a huge problem. Tell you what I mean. Remember, the tie that binds is the truth of the gospel. We could have some in-house discussions, even debates about some of these things. I do not hold to prosperity theology because to the best of my ability, I don't think the Bible supports it. Now, if I'm wrong, uh, then ignore what I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, And and you you may have your own opinion, and you're entitled to your wrong opinion. So, So what's the prosperity gospel? Simply, it says God has made promises of health and wealth to those whom he has saved. If you're a Christian, God has made promises of health and wealth to you. Uh, So that if you're a child of the king and are sick or impoverished, you are living in the absence of physical well-being or financial well-being, it's because you have not properly embraced the promises of God. Your faith is deficient. If your faith was up to snuff, you would lay hold of the biblical promises guaranteeing you as a child of the king health and wealth. If you don't have those two commodities, there's something wrong with you. Well, see, I don't buy that. I do not think there is one promise in the Bible, including this one, that promises you as a Christian health and wealth. This side of heaven. Now, we'll talk about the other side in just a second. Now, you can show me stuff, and if I'm wrong, I challenge you. Show me. Uh, I'll bet you you're not taking that verse in context. For instance, uh, 
I know this verse cannot be a proof text for prosperity theology because it's in the Bible and the master of it all, the king of kings, Jesus, how much of the world's wealth did he have? Good night. He had to borrow someone's grave to be entombed in it. He had nothing. Would we say to him, uh, Jesus, your faith in the Father's promises are deficient? Would we say that? Now, how could it be that our leader, we're not greater than the master, are we? How could he have so little of what the world had to offer materially and prosperity theology be correct? I just don't get it. Now, if you are influenced by prosperity theology, very bad. If you're struggling with cancer, diabetes, whatever, if you're in between jobs, you've been laid off, the only option is you've done something wrong. Your faith is deficient. You're on the outs with God. If you had it together, you would have these things. It's a very, it's a very dangerous theology because of that. I don't know how many people are forced into uh, despondency because you got no place to go. If you doesn't what go against. Oh. I got you, Dave. Sure, it's inconsistent with that. You're so right. You're so right. Of course, one could ask the question, if this is true, Dave, what we're speaking about, then how could it be a loving father who happens to be the king of kings would allow some of his kids to go through excruciatingly difficult times medically and financially? Well, let me answer. Um, the, the only promise of... of um, Ultimate physical well-being is on the other side in heaven. See, we're promised a glorified body. That means a body not subject to aging, decay, disease, or death. It has to be that way because none of our bodies, and we've seen lots of beautiful bodies in here, some more than others, but, um, <laughs> but not a one of them is, gonna, is fit for eternity. You, 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 they have a shelf life, so to speak, so these are not glorified bodies. We get glorified bodies. Hence, yes, there will be, at that time, it will be a disease-free, death-free environment. And then in terms of needs of a material kind met, of course, in heaven, all of our needs will be met. And I'm a little hesitant to even say material needs because don't you understand it's a different dimension. So needs for food, clothing, and shelter, would we really even have them? I don't know this. The Bible says what God has in store for us goes beyond even what we can imagine. So, 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 so there is a guarantee. That's why it's called heaven. Blissful existence. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, these are the first things, have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. That's when, of course, we'll be in different bodies and our status will be entirely different. But this side of heaven, there is no promise of immunity from the throes of life, including disease and layoffs and economic downturn and inflation and all the rest. So that begs the question. But if God is good, how could he allow and why would he allow his kids to go through this? For the sake of eternity. Tell you what I mean. If you're honest you will say, oftentimes, you're better spiritually during times of adversity, not times of prosperity. 
during times of prosperity, we're prone to put God on the shelf. When we hurt, we grab onto him and say, I will not let you go. Help me. And so even David says in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. David's situation enhanced his interest in obeying God's word. David furthermore says in Psalm 119, verse 71, listen to this. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Who says something like that? It is good for me that I was afflicted. And he says, well, that I might learn your statutes. I would rather preach an adversity gospel than a prosperity gospel. If you read script, well, I'll read. Let me read scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying. Take a look of it, folks. I don't know how many oils I had to put on this outer man today. I took a shower. And you get this dry skin. You got to put this on. You got to put that on. You got to put the facial thing. You got to. Good night. I am just creamed out. The outer man is decaying for crying out loud. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's not a promise of uh, health and wealth. That's a promise of a decaying body. For momentary light affliction. You know, God is not minimizing the pains we go through when we're subject to the ravages of life. But in terms of eternity, he calls it momentary and light. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen. Prosperity gospel is all about the visible. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. Your stock portfolio ain't going with you. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Our Father loves us so much that he's willing to allow us to go through some real challenging times here in life. And he can use those times to enhance our dependence on him. And all of this is for eternal gain. So I don't hold to the prosperity gospel, and I definitely, so I want to tell you this. If you hold to it, we can still be friends. We're surely members of the body of Christ, but you're not permitted to use Third John verse 2 anymore to prove your position. That has nothing to do with it. Now, I didn't tell you what it does say. Look what John is saying. Beloved, he's referring to Gaius, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, Don't miss the next phrase. Just as your soul prospers. What's he saying? Gaius, I know you're sick. This implies Gaius had a physical problem. But you know what I'm praying, Gaius? That you would come to be one day just as well physically, bodily, as you are already in your spirit. Gaius, whatever may happen, even with your medical infirmity, it is well with your soul. Gaius, I'm concerned not only about your soul, but about your body. May you be well with the same measure of wellness physically that you possess spiritually. That's what he, let me ask you a question. Could John say that to you or me? Could he say, I wish you the same measure of physical well-being that you have spiritually? Wow. Let me ask you this question. Is it better be, to be physically well and spiritually sick 
or spiritually well and physically sick? B. So one of my sons was born with a kidney disease when he was a kid. One kidney uh, doesn't work. The other is failing. Um, When he was young, a very well-intentioned lady came to me and said, Stuart, you know it's not God's will for your son to have that disease. What do you mean, said I? It's not his will. He's good. And she shared proof texts. She said, uh, I'm praying... um, you know, for your son's healing, which I, I, I thanked her for and welcomed her. And she said, but you must not ever use the diagnosis, don't mention it, that the doctors gave you. That's a negative confession. You don't want to speak that upon your son. It was all kinds of spooky stuff to me. <clears throat> she meant well. Then I said to her, isn't it possible that God is you, could use this? in my son's life to help him one day to be spiritually well? How could he possibly do that, said she. I said, well, my son can go the way of a lot of kids. He can, he can turn his back on God. He can get involved in drugs. He could marry the wrong person. He could steal. He could kill. He could, I mean, he can just be an ungodly wretch. Could it not be that God maybe can use this to enhance his awareness of his need for God, his dependence on him, and his constant petition to God as his great physician? This was just bizarre behavior to her. She didn't think that could happen. Well, let me just tell you, folks, I I guess I'm bragging. That's exactly what's happened. My son is a godly man. It's not well with his body. It is well with his soul. He's teaching a Bible class, right? No, he already finished it earlier now. Oh, you guys were in it? Hey, look at that. Way to go. What do you hey, way to go. You show good you show good good discernment. So 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 so, so my point is nobody welcomes those kinds of things, but it, but a loving God can use all those things for the sake of uh the eternal gain of one of his kids. So okay, so here's what what John is saying. Please don't miss the verse here. It's not, it can't support, in fact, it supports the opposite of prosperity theology because it it is revealing that someone could be spiritually well yet physically sick at the same time. In other words, Gaius' faith is not deficient. John is commending him for being such a cool dude, spiritually speaking. And yet he's sick. He's got something going on. Don't you see it? You can't equate your physical sickness with your spiritual impoverishment. A lot of godly people don't have much of what the world has to offer, and a lot of godly people are not healthy. But man, we sing this, it is well with my soul. Don't you find yourself praying more for people's physical well-being than their spiritual well-being. Hey, don't stop praying for people's healing and physical well-being. I didn't say that. But here's something I try to do. When I pray for them, oh, God, would you please heal so-and-so of this cancer or so-and-so? Why wouldn't you want to pray that that way? Of course I do. Then they also say, but God, would you use this physical challenge in this person's life to enhance his or her dependence on you folks can i encourage you to pray that as well what good is it if your friend gets healed but is spiritually not well instead pray that god would use the illness to enhance a state of spiritual well-being bear yeah yeah well said 
Great. Yeah. Yeah. Really great, Barry. Right on target. Barry was talking about Paul. Remember, he prayed, prayed three times, take this thorn from me. And God, God didn't. Paul said, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Not Paul's power, God's power in him. And then Paul concluded, this is better for me because when I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm weak in my own self-confidence, I depend on the Lord Jesus. Can you see why prosperity theology to me is absolutely contrary to Scripture? That is not the normative Christian life. Not the normative Christian life. But okay, you can embrace whatever you want to. You just can't blame it on a verse like this. You're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to a misinterpretation of Scripture. You're not. Now, if I've just done that, you need to come to me and correct me. You need to come. But you better come having studied up. I don't really care about your background and your opinion or what your grandfather thought. I don't care. I just want you to correct me about verse 2 if I got it wrong. And if I got it right, swallow your pride and move on. Okay, let's move on. All the way to verse 3. I was very glad, says John, when brethren came and testified of your truth. That is how you're walking in the truth. What's up there? Brethren are traveling missionaries, itinerant preachers and teachers, many of them in that day and in our day. They passed through, Gaius embraced them, provided for them, as you'll see. They then went back and gave John a report about Gaius, glowing. They said two things. He has the truth, one. Two, he walks in the truth. You know what that means? He was consistent. It means his walk matched his talk. It means... There was no discrepancy between doctrine and deeds. (laughs) What good is it to have good theology and yet not be good? This is a man who had the truth. No, he didn't just have the truth. The truth had him. You see, he's commended for it. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear my children walking in the truth. What does it mean to walk in the truth? It means to have it, to understand it, to know it, to believe in it, and to do it. That's the application phase. Very important. Beloved, verse 5, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they're strangers. What does that mean? Sometimes there would be these visiting itinerant missionaries going from place to place, and Gaius wouldn't know each of them personally. He would get to know them. Still, he would open up his heart and home to them even while they were strangers. Now, don't miss the point here. Even those strangers probably carried with them a letter of recommendation from one like John. He, you see this in the Bible. Remember when Paul said one time, hey, I'm sending Timothy to you. He's a good guy. He served me well. He's a fellow worker. Open up your hearts to him. You get a letter of recommendation from a guy like Paul about someone you don't know. You feel comfortable. But I'd be very careful about opening your homes to someone you don't know about. You may be putting yourself and your family at risk. Now, you may think that's Christian love. I just call that stupidity. There's nothing virtuous about that. If someone doesn't have a paper trail, you better be very careful, folks. You may be opening the door to some mass murderer, some crazy person. You've got to have some paper trail. So, 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 so. Uh, Gaius is being commended. You opened up your heart and home. You extended hospitality to traveling missionaries who you knew, but even strangers you embraced. Verse 6, 
and they've testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. See that phrase, send them on their way. Your Bible might say, send them forward. It came to be a technical phrase in the early church. And it meant this. You have provided for the needs of a traveling missionary. You gave them a bed, a meal, maybe you washed their clothes. Now they're going to go on to their next station to share the gospel. When this says, send them on their way, it meant supplied and equipped. Don't send them with an empty stomach or empty pocket. Provide for them. How? Well, in a manner worthy of God. In other words, don't get cheap. In other words, provide for them in the same manner in which God would provide for those who are going out to represent him to others. Send them forth supplied. They stopped. They rested. uh, You fed them and make sure they have all they need to get to the next station. And John is saying, uh, Gaius, you've done all this and it has been so reported. That's good. And then verse 7, for they, these itinerant missionaries, they went out, look what it says, for the sake of the name. Whose name? Jesus. The name above all name. They went out for the sake of the name. What does that mean? Missionaries should not go out for the sake of sinners. No, they should go out for the sake of the Savior. What's the difference? If you go out for the sake of sinners, you're going to be under pressure to get a whole bunch of converts, numbers whether they're genuine conversions or not. You just, you, it's scalp. You're going to go scalp hunting. Because when you go back to your home church, you want to give a report on numbers of professions of faith and baptisms. You want to say, you know, 1,200 people accepted the Lord. Hooray, hallelujah, everyone claps. Go back a year later. Visit all 1,200. See what you got. Come on. I'm against this number thing. I'll tell you why. I think God values faithfulness, not numerical success. If a missionary goes out, stays in the field, and is faithful, and leave the results to God, that's the missionary I want to support. I'm not looking for glowing reports. I'll tell you why. No missionary can save anybody. Can you? This is just nonsense to even think that's the case. I'm looking for measures of faithfulness for the missionary. Now, I see missionaries leave the field because they're not seeing... Uh, glowing numbers. So I share this with you. Uh, I go, uh, uh, some of you have gone with me on missions trips to the Middle East. Uh, I don't have numbers to report when I get back that are very attractive, very glowing. I don't. If the church uh, decides, therefore, to cease supporting that, that's okay with me. I'm still going to do it. I don't care. Why don't I have glowing numbers? Because it's the Middle East. It's not the Bible Belt. So it took us eight years to develop trust in something called a Druze village. D-R-U-Z-E. It's an Arabic culture. They're a group that's an offshoot of Islam from Egypt 1,000 years ago. They have a very mysterious secret religion, the Druze religion. They're a closed community. If you convert, you're killed. It's not just that somebody doesn't like you. Penalty of death. They don't like outsiders. We've worked that village for eight years. How? Serving them. 
winning their hearts. Things are happening. We bought a, an air conditioner for a lady in the Jews' village a few years ago. You did. Sagemont Church did. Her husband died. She was a widow, really poor. Two teenage kids living in a real ramshackle house. We decided to do what we do, could do to pretty it up. We plastered, we painted. It was real hot. We bought this room air conditioner. Later, the leader of the group, he was here last week, moron, or it was a week before. Uh, he said, you want to go with us? We're going to go into the town to pay for the air conditioner. Yeah. So I'm in a car with him and the leader of the Jews' village, key leader, civic leader, um, who we, we have worked with for eight years. We go into the appliance store. The owner is there, intimidating, tall, big beard, wearing dark clothes and a white hat, Drew's religious garb. You don't just do your business in the Middle East, especially in Arabic culture. You sit and you got to drink Arabic coffee. It's in a little cup like this. It's real strong. Put hair on your chest or a hole in your chest, one or the other. And you just don't rush things. And you just make conversation and you drink this stuff, you know, and when in Rome, do as the Romans and you do it and you're about ready to die and you just keep drink that coffee with a smile on your face. Oh, no, I think I've had enough. But anyway, uh, Moran says to me, he's asking you, why are you here? Why are you doing this? I shared my testimony. I said, I never would have seen myself doing this. Then one day I came to know the God of the Bible. I came to know of his love for me and for all people, including you. I came to believe it because he showed evidence of it. He sent his son to die for me and for you. I'm saying this through a translator. Then the guy gets up. No change in facial expression. He's towering over me. He's coming to me. I'm thinking, I done bought the farm. And I'm, 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 that's it. I'm going in a Drew's appliance store. That's it. It's over. He asked me to stand up. He gives me a huge bear hug, and he's crying. And he said, this is your home. I don't have numbers. I can tell you stories. You say, well, did he accept Christ? Not in my presence yet. Yet. It took us eight years to get that far. And then the community leader sitting right there heard everything and said to us in the car, I'm ready to accept a Bible. You see, that's nothing. We hand out Bibles here. This is the Bible belt. That's the Middle East. Jews, Arabs, Muslims. <laughs> it's different. One guy accepted the Bible. The other guy heard the, the gospel and embraced a guy who shared it. Now we go to the village. The mayor comes, welcomes us. They print in their paper in Arabic. Our friends from Texas, they call us Notes Reem from Texas, are back. It means followers of the one from Nazareth. They know who we are. We're not Mormons. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not Baptists. We're followers of the one from Nazareth. They're back in our village. And you know, people come out like a parade in cars honking, and they hand out pastries, candies, cookies to us while we're working in, in, in the village. Ask me how many professions of faith. I haven't seen one yet. How many baptisms? Not one. How many vacation Bible schools? Not one. How many tracts have been handed out? Not one. I got some dismal numbers. But man, I can talk to you about bridges being built, relationships of trust being established, people who had never named the name of Jesus, 
beginning to hear about him. I think God values faithfulness. Don't worry about numerical success. Leave the results to him. It's a, it's a malady that Baptists have. Numbers of giving, numbers in class, numbers in churches, numbers, 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 numbers. I didn't say it's ungodly. I'm just saying it's not the best barometer of what's really going on. Would you rather have a church of 2,000 carnal Christians or 200 who are devoted followers of the Lord Jesus? So anyway, um, John is essentially saying these are ones who went out for the sake of the name. They didn't go out for the sake of sinners. What What does it mean they went out for the sake of the name? Jesus is so marvelous, he deserves to be publicized. And you leave the results to him. That's what keeps a missionary in the field. Publicize the name of Jesus and leave the results to him. They didn't go out for the sake of sinners. Don't do that. Because if you don't then get enough sinners repenting, you'll feel like a failure. Go out for the sake of the name. Jesus should not be kept in private or secret. Publicize his name. And in doing so, they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. What does that mean? The context here means they didn't accept things from unsaved people. That's what it means. You're going to have to trust me on this. Uh, And why didn't they accept? Why why were they not supported by unsaved people? Wouldn't that compromise the mission? You're a missionary offering the freeness of the gospel for payment? So therefore, the support of Christian missionaries must come from other Christians. Nothing has changed. doesn't mean you can't receive something from an unsaved person. Don't misunderstand. But primarily the support of Christian missionaries must be provided by other Christians. Gaius was one of them. And Paul, therefore, is commending him. Therefore, verse 8, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. This is marvelous. We have no indication that Gaius was a preacher, a teacher, a missionary, nothing like that. But Gaius was considered a fellow worker with those who are. How? By supporting them. Some are sent. Others support those who are sent. We do that here. It's quite biblical. It's a New Testament vision. Some are called to go. Others are not called to go. But we are called to help them to go, to be provided for. We are called to send them out in a manner befitting of the Lord. And then we can be fellow workers in missions. Now things change. Verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, bad guy, does not accept what we say. John wrote something. Diotrephes intercepted it, probably kept it from the rest of the church. Why did he do it? He didn't have a doctrinal problem. He had a personal problem. He was filled with pride. He loved to be first, and he didn't even want to submit to an elder, an apostle, the apostle John. Who is this John messing with my church? Have you ever been in a church where there's a a few people who control it? Man, oh man, that's a desperate, desperate place to be. That's what you got here. Diotrephes gets John's letter. What was it about? Well, it probably had the names of recommended missionaries who are passing through and who John said, you ought to extend yourself to. And Diotrephes said, no way. This is my church. I'm not having these strangers come on in here. I'm not going to listen. So this is a big problem. And Paul, uh, John doesn't want to. Uh, Gaius to be influenced by by Diotrephes, verse 10. For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds. Now, look, Christians, 
are supposed to be kind and gracious and patient and redemptive. But we're not a bunch of flower children. Sometimes you've got to go toe-to-toe with a church member and set the bounds. Sometimes you've got to do it. Sometimes people say, that's so cruel, that's so mean. No, 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 no. Look, if one other member creates a personal offense to you, you've got to get over it. I'm afraid you can't go to war over that. You just got to swallow it. You got to pray about it. You got to grant forgiveness. But if a church member is doing that which can have damage, real or potential to the church, leaders of the church have to have an offense. You have to go for it. That's what John is saying. He's pointing out the deeds of this guy, the atrophies. Here's the first, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. That's called gossip. Can't let it happen. We're going through a transition period here at Sagemont. I think it's going beautifully, wonderfully. We're together. It's good. Our beloved pastor is here, Brother John. Everything that has led us up to this point was done with his participation, full participation. Five and a half months of meetings. He never missed one. An outside consultant to help us. 18 wonderful people. I don't remember one unkind word in any one of those meetings. Things were done respectfully, graciously. The entirety of our personnel team being on board. Three uh, trustees in the church being on board. The entire executive staff of the church being on board. The entire deacon body being on board. Our pastor being on board as he made his announcement June 9th, stepping away from the direct leadership role of senior pastor thus authorizing the church to create the mechanisms to search for his replacement whenever it may be, which is happening, by the way, even as we speak. And yet there are some in this church unjustly accusing us with wicked words and saying, heavy-handed, how could they have done that to our pastor? Done what? Done what? Invited our pastor to participate while he's still here in the process of helping us find our next pastor? Is it better to let him die and then start from point A? Isn't it better to benefit from his godliness and wisdom and integrity while he's still here? What have we done? And if someone thinks that, and some do here, the audacity to gossip about it instead of asking for more information. I'm not a bad guy, but I think it's wise to have an offense and not wait for people like that to take the next shot. Again, personal offense, you just live with it. Things that damage the church cause a rift and potential for divisiveness and division. Leaders of the church owe it to, to, to the church to protect it and box that person in or those, per, those people in. I'm a hot-headed Jew. I understand it. It's part of my culture. We do not get ulcers. We give them. (laughs) Just the way it is. It's an ethnic deal. We're not dignified. We're not proper. We're out there. I understand restraint is called for. But there is a time when you do just what John did. You confront the person 
And you point out what that person is doing. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Not satisfied with this. He himself doesn't receive the brethren. A missionary comes, knocks on the church door, looks for help. And this guy, uh, whatever his name is, Diotrephes. Yeah, he says, go somewhere else. Not only that, he forbids those who desire to do so. He puts them out of the church. He excommunicates church members who are lending support to a traveling missionary. Why is he doing it? Well, John diagnosed it right. He loves to be first. Listen here. Uh, There are options in a church when a member is troubled by what's going on. Uh, One is we can grow together and get through it. That's the best one. One is that that church member can go. So you can grow, you can go. You know, if I got to a point where I didn't trust the leadership of a church, I'm going. Why make a mess for it? Go somewhere else. So I got three G's that are options. One, (laughs) you can grow together. That's the best thing. We can get through it. Two, you can go. Well, you're, you're happier. Here's the third option. This one is unacceptable. Grumble and groan. You can grow, you can go, you can't grumble. You cannot gossip because that undermines the church. If you're a gossiper, stop it. If you're the recipient of it, don't let it happen. You don't have to be huffy. You can just say, why don't you go speak to the ones who you have ought against? Isn't that a biblical principle? This church has open doors. You want to see the numbers anytime you want to. You want to meet with the interim senior pastor, any one of us, open door at any time. And we better listen because you may have something to say, a word of correction. No problem. The gossiping, that's just because you want to be first. You just want attention. You don't want to fix it. You're not a part of the problem. You're not a part of the solution. God prohibits gossip. That's not a Sagemont church policy. That's a New Testament policy. So serious, in fact, John goes for it. Beloved, don't imitate what's evil. Imitate what's good. And then he gives an example of a good guy to imitate in verse 12. His name is Demetrius. He's received a good testimony from everyone. Not only that, from the truth itself. He lives consistent with the Bible, in other words. And we had our testimony. You know that our testimony is true. Don't follow Diotrephes. Don't give him a platform or sphere of influence. On the other hand, Demetrius is a good guy. Follow him. It's essentially what he's saying. Then he goes on, verse 32. Look, I got much to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you shortly. We'll speak face to face. You know what that did? That encouraged two guys and terrified a third. (laughs) That encouraged Gaius and Demetrius. That freaked out Diotrephes. Because John is saying, I'm coming. We're going face to face, toe to toe. Now, some people think, oh, that's not the way it should be. Nope, nope, nope. You take away the offense of someone in a church with a divisive spirit. You take away the, you box them in lovingly. Please don't misunderstand. You just say, look, you have a perspective and it may be valid. Please share it to the source. But this undercurrent of, uh, of uh, character assassination, unacceptable, that cannot happen. We cannot get down the road together, which is what we want to do. That's, that's, that's what you want to do in a church. That's what we need to do in this church. Anyway, so John goes on. 
I hope to see you shortly. We'll speak face to face. And then he ends, peace to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends by name. It's the only time in the Bible Christians are called friends. Why? Because some of the Christians were unfriendly. The the diatrophies was unfriendly. Remember, we're not dealing with the doctrinal issue here. It's a personal issue, character issue. Diatrophies is still a brother, but not a friendly one. I hope most of your relationships here are with friends. (laughs) <laughs> fellow Christians who are friends, but reality is we cannot be on friendly terms with everyone. It's just the way it is. And John is essentially, the friends with me, says he, greets you. In other words, I got people who support me. You greet the friends by name, and then he offers them peace. Peace? In the midst of all this upheaval? Yeah, yeah. You always have to find the peace. You have to find the peace in knowing Jesus is still on the throne. He's the head of the church. He can deal with things. Look to him. Be careful about getting so overwhelmed by circumstances in a church that you become cynical, you become embittered. I struggle with this. I'm not preaching at you. I'm trying to, you just want to throw your hands up and give up or you want to punch someone out. This is bad stuff to say, isn't it? Yeah. And that's not good. Peace be to you. Find the peace. The Prince of Peace is still on the throne. He knows all things. Ask him to be glorified. You can't work it out. He can. And don't stir things up. Just to get things off your chest. That's a tough one. That's a tough one for me. (laughs) Anyway, some people say, why can't we be like the New Testament church? We are. (laughs) They had issues. We have issues. And yet... The gospel still goes forth, even from one such as us. I close with this. One of my favorite quotes. This is really bad in a Baptist church. Martin Luther, he said this. While I sit here sipping my Wittenberg beer, the gospel still runs its course. What this great man Martin Luther was saying is, the gospel doesn't depend on me. <laughs> God gives me the privilege of being a vehicle by which it goes through. But in spite of our flaws and inadequacies, God will still accomplish his redemptive purposes. Forget the beer thing, but. (laughs) Thank you, Lord Jesus, for holding us together. Thank you for peace, which passes understanding. Thank you for the exhortation to let the peace of Christ call the shots in our hearts. Thank you for this magnificent church. It's wonderful history, very, very hopeful future. Thank you for those who serve here, our members here. Thank you for this diverse family united by the truth. And we pray that from this church, the truth might go forth so that other people can hear about you because you are worthy of praise. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, next week, Lord willing, Brother Chuck's going to start us on Jude, J-U-D-E, based on the famous Beatles song.